It's about the tools we use. It's about the stories we tell. It's about how we change. It's evolution, baby. Right, and back for another episode. I'm excited today to be joined by my longtime friend and brother, Matt Lozano. Matt and I have known each other, boy, 20 years at this point, probably, which is kind of wild to consider. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Been through a lot of uh, a lot of life together, many many journeys, many different times and places, and. I'm excited to have on Matt today to talk about a pretty deep subject, which is grief and loss, which I think, you know, Matt has some personal experiences with he'll be he'll be sharing and thought it was a good idea, too, because culturally, I think this is something that's very up for us right now um, in many, many ways, you know, for, for those that are losing loved ones during the COVID crisis. To those that aren't, but are feeling the impact of, you know, I would say the the death of a certain type of normalcy that we had acclimated to over the last many many years. So with that, I kind of just want to throw things over to you, Matt, to uh, um, have you introduce yourself to the gang a little bit. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me. <clears throat> I wanted to um, first of all just show my gratitude for you having me in the first place. Um, having the forum to have this conversation because I think it's a, a resource that we don't easily come by to have this conversation about grief. And uh, for myself, I am a proud cancer survivor of 10 plus years. That was the scariest and best thing that ever happened to me because it led me to my new career. Um, I'm now a clinical therapist, mental health counselor, um, substance abuse counselor, uh, licensed clinical social worker. And I'm proud to have worked in refugee resettlement, cancer treatment, hospice care, medical social work, and now outpatient behavioral health. And because of my work in hospice, I've remained really passionate about um, continuing to talk about grief and loss and support people through the process. Um, I think that grief support is still a very difficult resource for people to find, especially the secular population. While I I totally think that uh, people, um, I myself am a spiritual person, but I believe that uh, even people who um, don't engage in uh, religion or spirituality also still need the support very much. Um, Grief, I think, is a scary topic to address. Most people don't want to think about it. But one of the big things I wanted to touch on today was anticipatory grief and how um, letting ourselves feel that and process that is a lot healthier than what we call complicated grief, which when grief is not addressed, it can very easily lead to depression, physical ailments, other things. Um, I love that. Yeah. Um, I've, I've never heard it break broken down like that before, but it makes so much sense. And, you know, one of the, one of the many adventures you and I have had together was um, maybe two years ago, you came out and, co-led a, a men's work weekend with me. And that's something I've been doing for a couple of years. And 
strikes me that the, the latter version of that grief you spoke about is often what I'm working with men on in those kind of deep dives of grief that's, you know, in some ways kind of accumulated in our bodies over the year and then begins to kind of start to come out sideways, I would say, in many, many different forms, like physically and emotionally, behaviorally, in terms of addictions and different self-soothing techniques. And that um, this is a very real thing. I think uh, a lot, a lot of people struggle to to deal with in our culture. And I would say, you know, from my viewpoint, the work I do, particularly, I think men. Absolutely. When Brene Brown did her research on shame, she only focused on women to start with. And then she shifted to men because of an encounter she had with a man who said it was, quote unquote, very convenient that she only focused on women. And he said to her, I know that my wife and daughters would rather see me die on top of my horse than fall off of it. And for me, what I took from that was for men, shame can be worse than death. And what she found after so many interviews with men was the overall theme was don't ever be perceived as weak. And unfortunately, we're still, you know, uh, practitioners like you and me and so many others are still battling the social stigma that emotional vulnerability is equal to weakness um, when totally. it's a huge strength, <clears throat> huge strength. Yeah, that's uh, an ongoing battle. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, you know, when it comes to grief, what I've read is that understanding the stages that were created around it can be really helpful, um, in normalizing how you're feeling. And so speaking to what people are going through right now with the coronavirus, which I'll touch on more later, um, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, one of the most well-known names in, in grief work, she wrote on grief and grieving. And she created um, the stages of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And it's very important to remember whatever grief work you're doing, these stages are nonlinear. At times, they can be repeated. Um, The anger, I've learned something very powerful that um, anger does usually stem from fear. Anger itself is healthy and necessary at times. We absolutely need to be angry. And healthy anger is needed to create healthy boundaries in our lives. Um, But most often stems from fear. I remember when I was interning at uh, this cancer treatment center, I followed a man who uh, his cancer progressed from bad to worse. He was put on hospice care. But when I first met him and his wife, uh, she was very cold and deflected me and shut me down pretty much. Um, I then met her when he was put on hospice care, and that's when she had finally gotten past that anger into more of the bargaining and depression, and she was um, tearful. And I actually walked in. I, I didn't think she would remember me. And when she had a chance to catch her breath, she turned to me and she said, I am so sorry for how I treated you. And so she was able to get past that into the heart of things, really grieving him because in the same conversation, she said, he is just so young. I don't know why this is happening. Um, 
And so that again is, is what so many of us though are so scared. We're scared to get to the fact that we're scared. Um, and anger being the protective emotion feels safer, feels more empowering in the moment. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, it, it brings to mind the, um, kind of imagery we often see of, you know, wounded animals lashing out, like they're, they're trying to protect themselves. Right. Mm. So it, it comes out in an outward facing thing. And yeah, I love that reframe because that's definitely something, um, you know, I have to work with a lot of men on either men that are too angry and, and, and flow over into the realm of aggression, which I think is the um, unhealthy version of that where, you know, it comes outward face, towards people and impacts them in negative ways versus, you know, clean anger is just an expression of an energy, right? It's an expression of a fear or a deep caring as, as one of my teachers put it. And that, or other guys, you know, kind of more on the nice guy side of the spectrum that have just totally shut it down, right? It's not okay. It's dangerous. I don't want to hurt anyone. And then, you know, that gets internalized in, in, in some pretty dangerous ways and dissecting those and, you know, learning how to, um, healthily express that I think is so important. And, you know, in a lot of the work I've done and with one of my teachers, you know, what he kind of pointed out that, which, I, which really seems to flow into this quite a bit is, you know, there's often a correlation. And, um, I think in men, I've often seen that anger often will morph into anguish. Like it, it gets the energy moving and then, and then, the, the, you know, the deep fear, the deep caring really comes out when there's a good container around it, when there's support, when it's, you know, valued and, you know, yeah. there's, there's someone like you, I think, present to, to witness that. Um, and, but I think that's such a key, 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 um, stage to, you know, create the healthiest version of, I, I, I would say, right. To, to give it the healthiest place to go and to honor it. And to not get stuck there, though. Yeah, absolutely. And and you hit on something really important there. And that the term I learned in a lot of my work with the Wellness Institute was um, holding the space for each other. So yeah, David Kessler, who's someone who co-wrote on grief and grieving with Kubler Ross, and who I'll talk about in a sec. He he made the point that emotions need motion. So when you talk about getting stuck there, <clears throat> as long as someone has those other people that are willing to hold the space for them. You know, the image of, of others just having a circle around someone and that person being able to feel angry, sad, scared, whatever it is, is really powerful. Um, if they are surrounded with, you know, you touched on both toxic masculinity or men that um, don't feel like they can own their own masculinity, um, that's, that can't be a safe space for anyone involved totally yeah. yeah and that's you know for those that know me <clears throat> it's one of the many reasons the power of that group work is one of the many many reasons i'm such a strong proponent of you know uh, i think every man should be in a men's group and have a place mm -hmm. they can regularly go to check in like that and if they don't have something like that available to find some kind of group like which i imagine you'll talk about um later in that, yeah, I love this other this other thing I want to circle back to that is related to that, I think, is the, the deeper work that I do start to, I am starting to see, you know, take hold of, um, 
this meme that's starting to spread that I certainly try to champion uh, in a lot of ways that, yeah, actually real strength is vulnerability, right? Like, and I, I give this image all the time of like, who would you consider the braver warrior? The, the one that's afraid to feel something or the one that's willing to feel something, mm-hmm. right? Like just, just very simple. That's like, right. Oh, the one that's willing to feel something. It's always the braver choice to feel in, in, in the work that at least I am a proponent of in that. Yeah. This emotional vulnerability um, is such an important thing to, you know, and, and I see this a lot with some of my older clients and, you know, once it's, I think once you become aware of it, it's kind of hard to unsee. And, you know, this is a bit of a judgment, but as you move through the world, you can start to see how people's bodies take the shape of what they haven't been willing to feel oh, in oh. some ways. Absolutely. Right? Partic- particularly, mm-hmm. you know, into like 50s, 60s, 70s, there, there can be like a, like a tightness or a sharpness in some people's bodies, just like a, uh, it's it's hard, it's hard hard to explain or like mm-hmm. a, a permanent slumping over you know of some people in that and this is where I want to circle back to I love this idea you introduced of um, acute grief and I, I imagine that's one way to kind of prevent that but I'm curious for you to kind of talk about that a little more absolutely um, dealing with acute grief which happens right after the loss. And it's important for everyone to understand that when we talk about grief and loss, we're not just talking about death of loved ones. People need to understand they need to grieve when they're going through a breakup, when they're going through any kind of huge change. Um, And they can be positive too. Um, People going to retirement, uh, students graduating. We always don't realize until after the fact how many things we are losing in the process, and we need to allow ourselves to grieve those things. Um, And then, of course, as we'll talk more on as we go, um, our current circumstances during the quarantine, we're all going through a lot of collective grief right now. So when it comes to dealing with the grief that follows right after the loss, uh, the acute grief really setting in, it's really about the day-to-day when I work with people in recovery, it's the same thing because they're going through a huge loss there. They've given up their drug of choice and they are giving up the one thing they've come to rely on, something I've learned from one of my teachers at the clinic. And um, practicing acceptance because yeah. so many of us feel there's got to be something I can do to stop feeling this way. There's got to be something I can do to make the anxiety go away, to make these thoughts I'm having go away. There must be something I'm doing wrong. And no, it's it's practicing acceptance that if you didn't care about that thing so much, then you wouldn't be emotionally affected this way. And yeah. so seeking support, like we're talking about, that image of that circle, have to really intentionally surround yourself with people who get it and with people who are capable of holding the space for you. That's not judging the people in your circle who can't hold the space. Maybe they just don't have the emotional intelligence, maybe because Mm -hmm. of their own background. It's scary for them. Maybe they're fixers and they want to solve a problem rather than just let you let those feelings go through you and just be present with you. And that's, that's difficult work to do. Um, But again, setting intentions. So not just with the people you surround yourself with, but what you invest your time and energy in, um, 
Um, and also, along with that, reframing our idea of what enough is. Um, mm. And that, you know, I've never read the four agreements, full disclosure, but I've read, you know, a snippet of what they are. Um, always do your best. The most powerful thing the author, Don Miguel Ruiz, said about it was, your best is going to look different when you're sick as opposed to when you're healthy. Totally. So I keep, I keep bringing this back to the quarantine. Um, our best is going to look different when we're grieving as opposed to when we're not grieving. Our best is going to look different when we're depressed as opposed to when we're healthy. Our best is going to look different when we're on quarantine as opposed to when we're not. And so it's really practicing reframing our idea of what that looks like for us and being willing to let go of the previous one and practice a lot of self-compassion around what we're able to do. I love that. And um, there's a couple things there that, you know, particularly what you're sharing about of um, in, in circle seeking support with those that, you know, can hold that space. You know, this is one thing I see a lot and, you know, have had to work a lot in myself and encourage you know, the men I work with um, to work. And that's just that, you know, one of the greatest, I think, gifts you can give is by doing this work and going to those being willing to go to those places in yourself, it makes it much, much easier to go there with others. And so, and to hold and, and stand in that space. Cause you know, one thing I've certainly noticed on my journey of, of growth and in, you know, I've worked with a full range of, of men and women, some who can go and some who can't go. And, you know, and I see this showing up in, 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 in relationships as well, when I'm coaching men on dating and whatnot, um, that, you know, anywhere that we struggle to go to in ourself, we're often going to be resistant to being in that space with someone else. So, right. If I haven't truly touched and been with my grief or my loss or my anger, when that starts to come up in someone around me, you know, as men, we try to want to just fix it and prevent them from going there or kind of redirect the situation because, oh man, if I'm with you while you're feeling sad, part of me to attune to you has to actually allow my my nervous system to, you know, kind of feel grief, feel sadness, feel with you in that moment. And mm. if, if I'm not comfortable going there yet, it makes it much harder. So this is one of the, you know, this is where I really, really try to nail home that this is one of the deepest types of leadership we can offer now is doing our inner work and going to these places allows us to go there with others, which is such a great, great gift, you know, um, in our communities, in, in, um, our circles. And that, um, yeah, I also really love the idea that your best, you know, your best changes over time. And I think that's, you know, I do so much, uh, connection work and community work and men's group work. And I, I think that's a cool way to reframe some of what I've thought about before of like, well, one of the benefits of being in relationship or in connection is, you know, as I kind of call it, we get to loan each other our nervous systems when we're down, so to speak, right? When I'm overwhelmed, Absolutely. when I'm totally collapsing, uh, when I'm fried, you know, and I'm with someone who's able to ground and just look me in the eye and breathe with me. It helps, you know, regulate me. And when I can't necessarily be my best, but they have a little extra capacity and, you know, can kind of help me get somewhere I might be struggling to get in that moment. 
and there's like kind of a, a collective back and forth in that sense. You know, I see this a lot in relationships, right? One day I'm down, my partner's up, next day she's down, I'm up. And part of what we're doing is, you know, helping each other when, when we're each not at our best, so to speak. So I, I think those are um, just, yeah, wonderful, wonderful um practices. And I'm imagining too, and I'd be curious, you know, from what you've seen in this work, I, I, I have a story then that the more we're able to be with that acute grief as it arises, the less it kind of accumulates and comes out in these kind of big, you know, maybe overwhelming things over the years where, you know, we have a total meltdown or a life just totally breaks down versus, you know, it's kind of more, um, regulating the system of just letting out the appropriate emotions instead of them all building up. And then, you know, there's a, there's a massive eruption. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, in that vein, you know, I, I mentioned anticipatory grief before. Yeah. I think that's really important to understand that concept and recognizing when it's happening so that we can do even more work in terms of like you said, going to those places in ourselves um, before even the loss happens. <clears throat> and so um, allowing time to heal before potentially seeking a new relationship before a breakup or uh, deciding even about dating again. And so then we kind of go into attachment styles as well, which I think is important to recognize in ourselves. Um, being willing to go to that place sometimes involves looking at our history And, um, how willing we've been to grieve before and how that speaks to what we're going to going through now, attachment styles being, you know, anxious attachment when we're, we can be more clinging in relationships, but we're also very attentive, caring, loving people, avoidant attachment when we tend to be more distanced, um, but also can be very strong and independent. And then we have the secure attachment, which is something I think we can all strive for anxious and avoidant both have their um, strengths. And it's not mm-hmm. about changing who we are. It's just who we are. None of these are bad, but yeah. going for that secure attachment style, like you talked about is being willing to do that work in ourselves so that we can hold the space for others too. Um, I like the idea of sharing a nervous system. I like the idea of when we talk about vulnerability as a strength, um, just practicing being willing to lean into someone else, that image of leaning into someone else and just that healthy form of surrender um, instead of storing it all up. Um, In the same vein, anticipatory grief, you know, you lose your job or you're fired, allow time to grieve. There's going to be anger in that. There also should be sadness in that, recognizing that um, you are, leaving behind, having to leave behind a big part of what's become your identity, but also in accepting the grief process, doing the work, you are more than that position. You're more than that title. Just like when I work with people in recovery, they are more than their addictions. Um, graduation, retirement, it's okay to be sad about losing student life. Um, yeah. Because it's such a huge part of our social lives when we're in that community. And it's, of course, Um, and with retirement too, because people are excited to not have to go to that day job again, but they don't realize they're not going to see those people anymore every day. They're not going to be on that same commute. Their life is going to change dramatically. Um, Mm -hmm. a big thing when it comes to anticipatory grief is 
uh, I relate it to when I work with people in recovery. There's a concept called pause, post-acute withdrawal syndrome. So it can go from anywhere from a few months to up to two years. So just like the grief process, <clears throat> when someone gives up their drug of choice, it's important to, to uh, specify here that we're not just talking about drugs and alcohol. We could be talking about dating, relationships, gambling, sex, food. Totally. Video games. Video technology. Absolutely. Yeah. So give up that drug of choice. There's this acute withdrawal syndrome. Um, for something more severe like substances, we could have a lot of physical conditions. Someone might have to go through detox, et cetera. For other things, it could be just severe anxiety. Like I'm, I'm craving that thing. I'm, it's not wanting, it's craving. Like I have to have it. Even mm -hmm. if there's negative consequences, that's the definition of addiction. Um, the pause for someone when they come off of drugs and alcohol, once they've gotten through the acute withdrawal, there's a post-acute withdrawal that's, that can be less severe, but it comes and goes, comes and goes. And so there are going to be days that are going to be harder yeah. for up, could be up for up to two years. What they, if they understand this concept in the beginning, they recognize when the harder day happens, this is normal. I knew this was coming. I can, I can deal with this. It's going to pass. Um, if they don't know about it, they can have a hard day like that after they've had this stretch of sobriety where they're like, wow, this is great. Yeah. I wish I'd made this change sooner. This is going so well. And then they have the hard day and they're like, oh, what did I do wrong? There must be something really bad happening here. I made the wrong choice. I might as well go back to what I was doing before. <clears throat> Same thing with grief. If you know the harder days are going to happen, that there's no magic trick to make those go away. There's no meditation uh, technique and there's no um, specific uh, timeline we can follow. Those harder days can be a little easier to accept and to know, okay, this is natural and normal. It will pass. I can get through it. Totally. So, and, it does, and, and knowing that I think is super important because then <sighs> – I think there's a temptation or it's very easy then if we do have hard days to, Oh my God, I'm failing. Yes. I'm not doing it right. Right. I'm, Oh, I am broken versus like, Oh, actually this is a normal rhythm. This is a normal part of this journey and it's okay. Right. It's okay that uh, a year in, I might have this energy come back up and this resurgence and that's totally normal. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's like a set of waves coming in. You know, it's been still for a while, but okay, here we go. And if I just know that I can be with those, doesn't mean I'm doing it wrong or I'm destined, you know, um, to relapse forever. It's just like, yeah, this, this is a part of it. And this is, this is okay. I, I love that. The pause. Yes, absolutely. Um, one of the biggest things I wanted to promote in this conversation with you was this article that I came across after the quarantine and shelter in place order got put into place. Um, they interviewed David Kessler. And for those listening and watching, please Google it and look it up. The title of the article is that discomfort you're feeling is grief. That discomfort you're feeling is grief. Um, Harvard business review. I'll put in it in the show notes too. Awesome. Thank you, Jason. Um, I have shared it with almost all my clients at work, shared it with my friends. So many people have have shared how it's been really really helpful to read through. So the uh, the columnist interviewed David Kessler, who co-wrote on grief and grieving with Elizabeth Kubler Ross. 
probably the world's foremost expert on grief, as they say in the article. And um, he also wrote a new book called Finding Meaning, The Sixth Stage of Grief, which I think is really mm. powerful to think about um, in, in the fact that when senseless tragedy happens, so 9-11 or even more recently, um, one of my groups, we spent a whole session talking about Kobe Bryant and, yeah. and losing him. Um, when senseless tragedy happens in our world, we as humans are built to try and make sense of it. And so we're going to do the same thing around coronavirus and what's happening. Um, right now, you know, he makes a lot of points that I, you know, I wish I could, I sum them all up, but some of the most important, he says, we're living through a huge transition right now. This is, you know, things have changed and this is the point where they changed. So it's a really powerful time to be living through as well. Um, I always tell my clients, change is really hard. Change is scary and change takes a lot of energy. Um, and so if you combine the fact that that's happening with the, the fact that he talks about we're living uh, through, we're feeling a lot of collective grief together, especially the anticipatory grief. And anticipatory grief, we've touched on already, but I wanted to make the point that it's really rare because we usually only feel it when we know a loss is coming. So with a loved one, if they're on hospice care or they've been given a really serious terminal diagnosis, um, if we know that a relationship is ending, yep. um, but we haven't ripped off the bandaid yet, neither partner has said, you know, I think we're done, we need to move on. Um, so it's, it's really important to recognize that type of grief and know when we're having it. Um, and he makes the point that because this change is happening and there's only so much we can control, acceptance is where the power lies. So if we can label it as grief, what we're going through, we know what we're feeling, and then we can understand the stages and normalize those feelings too. Um, I could keep going, Jason, but I didn't know if you wanted to step in. If there's anything so far you have thoughts on. No, I think that uh, yeah, it's a very, very powerful article, and I was I was super glad to see it um, coming up in my feed. And I think you know it does, and how it relates to the stages, you know, was something I was noticing. And you know, part of I think what you know you and I first talked about before we started recording of you know at first I've seen a lot of like um, you know oh it's just the flu people are making a big deal out of it uh, like kind of a denial about what was about to happen and what is actually happening. And, you know, I think there's still some of this collectively as well, like, oh, we're just going to get back to business. Um, a $1,200 check from the government is going to be enough to, you know, keep everyone afloat, which it's not, you know, um, like the economy is already more massively disrupted than it's ever been in our lifetime and perhaps in history. And then, you know, about a week ago, I started seeing people pushing back on, you know, safer at home initiatives of like, why are we doing this? Sweden's not doing it and other people aren't doing it. You know, what's the real cost of this? Like, uh, you know, a, a little bit more of, I think, the anger um, I started to see, at least in, in some of my feeds, kind of pushing back again on some of that. And then I think we're probably going to, you know, be pretty quickly heading into bargaining and depression. You know, I, uh, I know I feel grateful that I, you know, I live with a, a, a baby, a dog and a wife, but I have many, many people in my life who live alone, including, you know, my parents and, you know, 
two, three weeks, I think, you know, we can kind of deal with. Um, but a month, two months, three months, I think is going to be where real depression starts to kick in. Um, and, you know, this is combined with then the intensity, I think, of what's happening now is the very thing we would normally use to support ourselves through that, which is community, which is connection, which is co-regulation, just touch. A lot of people can't do. Yeah. And, you know, have to very intentionally kind of create these virtual connections the best we can right now to, to deal with that. But, you know, I, I, st- I, I do think it's like the uh, earthquake already happened and the tsunami is, you know, it's really just starting mm-hmm. particularly around these kind of um, around, I think this wave of grief uh, and the job losses are just starting, you know, deaths are still really just ramping up. And I think deeper than that, you know, at least from my mind is that, you know, for me, it's like I can feel there's a grieving around a certain type of naivety or innocence of like, um, I'm just going to go to that concert and barrel into a crowd of like 40 people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was just the other day or I'm going to go to the movie theater. I was just really thinking about like, wow, I actually don't know when everyone's going to be able to do that on autopilot again meaning no one's even thinking about it. Um, and like, that's tremendously sad to me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, I think about, you know, first of all, I, th- I think it was great when you talked about the pushback in the beginning of what you said, um, because I think that there's actually a lot of bargaining in that. I think that, true. you know, we talk about uh, people in recovery, you know, an example is, okay, if I'm sober for 30 days and I complete an intensive outpatient program, I can go back to what I was doing before. Um, if I, yeah. David Kessler makes the point in the article, if I stay in for, you know, 30 days, six weeks, whatever it is, then I can go back and do the things I was doing before, right? Um, people want, we want to know when things are going to be okay. And we want to know that if they stretch on longer, that we will still be okay. And that's so much of the bargaining process. Um, yeah. I was trying to, I was thinking there was something else. I think he, you know, one of the big things that's important to point out from the article that he talks about is because I have so many people when it comes to grief and I've had so many clients when it's coming to the quarantine, they, some of them have said, how do I cope with these feelings? How do I be okay with this? And some of them have had the insight to say, you know, I know there's no magic trick you can give me, Matt, to deal with this and be okay and not feel this way. Um, But a big thing I tell them to do that David Kessler points out is he says, you have to practice balancing your thoughts. So it's really easy for us to catastrophize, to imagine the worst case scenario. And that is that something you want to shut off completely. Uh, you want to balance it. You want to manage it a different way because um, when we catastrophize, when we imagine the worst case scenario, that's our mind's way of protecting ourselves. If we can imagine those things and we can consider them as possibilities, we can start to somehow mentally or emotionally prepare ourselves for them to happen. Uh, But we can't live in fear all the time either. Uh, And we also can't turn our minds off and force them to stop imagining those things. And so instead it's Again, coming back to intention, um, for every worst case scenario, 
um, you have to make yourself and there's no way, there's no other way around it. You have to make yourself, you have to practice imagining one positive possibility. It's not just mm. looking at the glass half full or half empty. It's uh, the examples he gives, uh, gives some people might find harsh, but they're, uh, they're important to recognize. Um, not everyone I love dies. Um, a lot of people will get sick and the world continues, you know, just really realistic, but also compassionate, um, shifting ideas and feelings. Um, and again, you know, I know, again, practitioners like you and I really uh, encourage and emphasize practicing meditation. And a lot of people, you know, are not comfortable doing it. And again, it's a practice, not one right way to do it, but you have to bring yourself back to the present as many times as possible. So I went, you know, I tell my clients all the time, especially in order to help them kind of reframe and comfort themselves around the idea of the quarantine. I went on a 10 day silent meditation retreat. I thank my wife profusely for that because she went and did it and then came back right away and said, you have to go do it. Um, and the first three days of that, I, I felt like I was going crazy. I thought I can't keep doing this. I can't keep doing nothing but meditation. And that's all we did on that is that we couldn't look at each other, talk to each other, gesture towards one another, <clears throat> 10 to 11 hours of meditation a day. You got to walk around the property, eat, sleep, and that was it. And there's this judgment around boredom. Like I can't, I can't be bored. I'm anxious being bored. Um, I'm, I'm not productive when I'm bored. I'm a bad person because I'm bored. I'm not doing things. Um, and really at the end of the day, I was fine. There was nothing that I didn't do that I couldn't do after the retreat. Um, but where I'm connecting this is, uh, after the first day, I'm sure everyone collectively was feeling like I'm doing this wrong. Just like we can feel like on quarantine, I'm not doing this right. There must be more I can do. Um, but the teacher right away just said, first day is over. What a wandering mind. What a wandering mind. And that is what we have to practice is bringing ourselves back from those wandering thoughts to the breathing as many times as possible. Every time we imagine the worst case scenario, we have to bring ourselves back to the present, one positive possible outcome, and what we can control. And the locus of control is really important to touch on too. Internal versus external. I make things happen versus things happen to me because we are all capable of falling into the victim trap during the quarantine, feeling powerless, feeling helpless and hopeless like this is never going to end and I can't do the things I was used to and therefore I can't control anything. <clears throat> I love that. I love those as um, uh, very tangible takeaways, um, you know, practicing that, particularly how you said it, the, the breath and the, the kind of somatic mindfulness of, you know, come back to your body, come back to what you're feeling in this moment. Um, you know, particularly for a lot of men I work with, one of our tendencies, I think, is to live up in our heads and in our thoughts outside of our bodies. And, you know, that has a lot of um, positives in terms of what we can do in the world. And it also has a lot of um, negatives in that, you know, oftentimes what I've experienced is that can ramp up, right? The thoughts speed up, the monkey mind speeds up because as long as we're like rolling around up there, we're not dropping in to the feelings in our body, right? We're not actually slowing down and, and, and feeling what's underneath that, where those, that energy does tend to live, you know, grief, sadness, anger, um, those things in our body. 
and um, the pairing it with a positive, such a tangible takeaway too. I, I really love that as a practice is like, okay, you know, I, I think I heard this somewhere online of like a, you know, it's kind of very rational in some ways, but it's like rarely are things as good as you think they are or as bad as you think they are. Mm-hmm. I, yes. I think that's a, a nice way to kind of balance it with that practice. And, um, the, the last thing I'll share is, you know, uh, my teacher, John has kind of taught me <laughs> this practice, which I love in terms of the locus of control of, you know, when we're feeling down or, uh, out of control, you know, there's ways, one of the most fundamental things you always have choice over is like to blast people with love, right? I might be feeling down. I might be feeling anxious and Oh my God, you know what I can do right now though, is I probably know five people in my life right now who I could just share some love with last love and right. Can't change what's happening out in the world, but you know, that's a place of agency. That is a place of, of control of, and then oftentimes, you know, we'll shift, shift what we're feeling because of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and that's the other, coming back to the power of acceptance <clears throat> in terms of we can have those intentions and we can do those things. Um, but again, just like the pause conversation we had earlier, inevitably, we have to remember that the word I kept coming back to is unprecedented. Everyone's using that word. And I keep coming back to it. When I start to think I'm not doing enough, I remind myself, we're going to have days when our locus of control is more external or just even moments because this mm-hmm. whole thing, there's no way we could have completely planned for it. Of course, there are probably, there are many things we could have done on a, on a bigger level that would have prepared our country more for it. But I mean, if we're talking about individually, emotionally, mentally, um, there's only so much we can do. There's only so much meditation we could have practiced or self-care. Um, and so again, there are going to be those harder days. So the key points, you know, when um, the interviewer asked David Kessler in that article, what would you say to someone who's read through this and is still overwhelmed with this whole process? He'd say, you know, practice acceptance, um, practice the empathy for others and, and blasting with love like you're talking about. Compassion for self. Again, recognizing your best is going to look different on some days versus others. Um, he talks about the concept of overprotect, don't overreact. So really being mindful of our thoughts, balancing our thoughts, but also, you know, overreacting. So when you talk about the monkey mind, practicing slowing down, going inside and seeing what's there, I'll be full disclosure, the first weekend, I think it was, it was right before the shelter in place was officially taking effect, you know, like 5 p.m. on March 21st or whatever it was. And, uh, my wife showed me an, uh, a video of, I think it was public school teachers going through her hometown, driving through the kids' neighborhoods to wave to them from the car because that was something they could control. That was a way they could still blast those kids with love. And I got overwhelmed by it emotionally, and that built a bridge for me to, to turn it off and say to my wife out loud, I'm scared. It's like I had to acknowledge. I had to go inside and, and get to the heart of it and say, I'm scared. I'm scared that... One of us is going to get sick. I'm scared that one someone we care about is going to get sick. I had to say it out loud. And so again, I went there, but then I was able to come back, be present with her, do something down to earth to care for ourselves. Um, and both are so important. <clears throat> and 
if there's anything I'd want to leave people with, because I know we're going to be wrapping up in a few minutes. Um, at the end, he says, keep trying. Keep trying for people who still feel overwhelmed. Um, I always tell my clients, you have to really avoid the common cognitive distortion and error in thinking we have, which is the should statements. I should feel better. I should be able to handle this. I should not feel this way. Um, stay with acknowledging how you feel. Like we mentioned way early on, emotions need motion, he says. And so practice, let go of controlling and just allow the feelings to happen. People, when I was in hospice care, people would always say to me, Matt, if I feel like if I let myself cry, I'm never going to stop. And I would always tell them, you will, you always will. And so just allow that wave to happen, like you were talking about waves earlier. Because again, if you allow that to happen, they will pass. But if you store them all up, they're just going to be there. I love the image of, 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 of as we age, again, kind of hunched over and crypt because it's like all that stuff is just stored up, stored up, stored up. Mm -hmm. um, and something, a really powerful image is uh, Kessler talks about, you know, we think that if we let ourselves have those emotions, that there's this gang of feelings coming for us. And he says, it's, that's never how it happens. We will feel one emotion at a time. They will each pass. We'll feel angry. It'll pass, afraid, sad, etc. And what I always tell people is that um, when it comes to grief and feeling like it's never going to end, it doesn't feel better or get better, but it can feel different over time. So if you've ever had a cold and a cough that stayed with that cold, that would never go away. You never had a moment with that where at like, you know, 8 a.m. On, on a certain morning, you right away realized, oh, my cough is gone. No, it, it's always that like later that day at like three o'clock or something arbitrary, you turned around and you were like, oh, I haven't been coughing since yesterday. It's, it's been gone. And that's what can happen with grief. We sometimes have a pang of guilt because it feels like, oh, I haven't thought about my loved one that died um, since yesterday. And then there's this guilt of like, does that mean I don't love them as much anymore or I've forgotten about them? And no, it's because you're letting yourself heal and time has passed. Mm -hmm. Just like with the quarantine, we will have days, not just harder days, but to balance it out, we're going to have days where we turn around and go, oh, I haven't felt anxious about being on the shelter in place since you know yesterday or the day before. I didn't even realize it. And it's because we've adapted, we've adjusted. And the things we're doing you know, the, the down to earth things we're doing feel like enough. And I think that's possible for all of us. Uh, yeah, I love that. The, the, the gang of feelings and, and, and all of that, I think that's something I often hear, um, an experience from men, but there, there is this thing that happens, you know, that when we touch a feeling completely, it, it tends to start to dissolve, right? Um, sometimes in one session and then there's more waves that come in over time and we just keep, you know, practice being with those waves. And, uh, yeah, like you said, it's almost always like a, a looking back at some point and it's like, Oh, actually I haven't, that hasn't been, it hasn't gripped me in the same way as, mm -hmm. as it did over a while. Right. It's kind of, kind of this thing, but the more, the more we're willing to go there, um, I think the easier it is to pass in that, Certainly what I found doing my own deep work and most um, every time I've done deep work with others is that 
the moment we actually go there, even if it's the worst, most intense feeling we've been avoiding or been afraid of our whole life, there's almost always a relief, right? There's, there's something about like our nervous system, like opens, right? After some deep grief, after some, um, deep anger or collapse or, you know, all these different things that, that we feel like in, in, it's, it's actually in the net always easier, right? The experience I always have is like, oh my God, I spent weeks avoiding that. And it took five minutes. Oftentimes, like that's, you know, one of the things that often surprises me is like, when we really, really go there, it's actually like really hard to be too full bodily angry. Yes. For more than a couple of minutes to be full bodily weeping, yeah. you know, where we're like <clears throat> heaving those beautiful full body cries. Yeah. Like it's physically, it's actually when we go there, it like our body just gets exhausted. And then there's like a little space afterwards and we, we can kind of regulate. And again, doesn't mean there won't be future pockets of it, but that little space creates, I think, even more opportunity for just a little healing and capacity to come in that then makes it even easier to kind of go there over time. But if we never have those opportunities to go there, it just builds up and becomes an even more daunting, you know, kind of like, Oh my God, I know there's so much there and I'm so afraid of going there. So I, I, I love that. Um, that practice of, yeah, don't, don't fear the gang of feelings, so to speak, like, you know, just like a, a thought, no, no feeling lasts forever. And there's a, there's a, a beautiful freedom that can kind of come from that of like, wow, okay. When I know it doesn't last forever, then I can just more directly turn towards it yes. as opposed to turning away from it. And That's then right. that in itself starts to create a different type of well being of like, oh, okay, I'm feeling sad today. So I can just, I can feel sad mm -hmm. right, today. I can, or I can feel scared as opposed to kind of the more bottling it up that culturally, I think, you know, we tend to emphasize here in the West and, and that I think this is going to, you know, everything we're going through is a, a big learning opportunity for us of like, yeah, how do we more consciously engage, you know, with these topics? And we, even with this concept of grief, you know, I think, um, it is something that's not really valued so much in the West. You know, we, particularly you grieve, you grieve individually alone, right? As opposed to communally grieving in, in, in a bigger way, which I think we're going to have to do mm -hmm. um, to kind of move through this, move through this whole experience together as we grieve, you know, a stage of life in, yes. in a way of being. And just that doesn't, you know, doesn't mean things might actually not be better overall globally in five years, but it's going to be different. That's right. right. And it's that different, like, oh, <clears throat> things, things are different, right? Like this is an inflection point of some kind. No one knows what it's going to lead to, but there is a difference that has already happened. There's like a ripple going out and giving ourselves space and um, getting into spaces where we can do that, I think is so crucially important right now. And yeah, man, it, it inspires me that you're uh, doing such deep work around this. And I'm curious if people are interested um, in more what you're up to, what's the best way for them to follow you or 
get in touch or are you available for virtual work? I, I don't even know kind of what, what your capacity is these days. Absolutely. So my full-time job is at, at the hospital um, and I'm doing a lot of good work there. I'm very grateful for that, um, especially during this time. Um, but I'm also starting an online grief group that's met once so far. Um, if you want to get in touch with me and you're interested in joining that and remember it's open to anyone who's going through any kind of grief. It doesn't have to be the death of a loved one. It can be a breakup. It can be the coronavirus and the quarantine. It can be any huge transition in your life. Um, you can reach me at steadfast.therapies at gmail.com. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at staysteadfast, S-T-A-Y-S-T-E-A-D-F-A-S-T. Probably the best ways. Fantastic. I would highly recommend that. <clears throat> um, connecting to Matt uh, if you don't have anywhere to get some support right now. This is, you know, the good thing is, and the other thing that warms my heart is we are starting to see a move away from the languaging of social distancing to physical distancing. Um, as intense a time this is, we do have a lot of technology available to help us stay connected um, in these times. And that, you know, I've always been shocked, like, my favorite thing still, I, I won't lie, is doing deep work with people in person and sitting face to face. Um, but it is really, really remarkable how much deep work can be done uh, remotely over video chats these days. Like it, it continually kind of blows my mind um, what's available, which I think is really great in that it gives me a lot of hope for getting this type of work out to communities that don't already have access to it. And something like your online uh, virtual group, I think is a, a great, great um, example of that. Awesome, brother. Well, thank you so much for spearheading this and what a, what an amazing conversation. And I noticed I feel a little bit better about the world just having had it. Me too. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Jay. And thank you for all the good work you're continuing to do, especially during this time. Um, I hope everyone just keeps trying. Keep trying. Special shout out and thanks to Screaming Witness for the amazing intro and outro song. Check them out. <laughs>